0: You're listening to audio from the cathedral church of the advent in birmingham alabama a church with a heart for the gospel find out more at adventbirmingham.org. thanks for coming and the, the first time i heard this story was from uh, i was a little four eleven and three quarters tall uh, ninth grader at birmingham university <laughs> school and my english teacher was martin Haymes, was the biggest person i'd ever seen in my life and uh, made four of me but he just loved reading these stories, and he helped shape my reading and writing. And uh, you know, when he was headmaster, I think that was that was ten years. I think we had one of the best schools in the country. It was really a privilege to <coughs> privilege to teach there. So I'm going to dedicate this to the big guy, Mr. Hames. Okay, best boss i ever had. All right, I'll have people. Y'all come on in here. <coughs> Imagine a morning in late November, a coming of winter morning more than twenty years ago. Consider the kitchen of a spreading old house in a country town. A great black stove is its main feature, but there's also a big round table and a fireplace with two rocking chairs placed in front of it. Just today, the fireplace commenced its seasonal roar. A woman with shorn white hair is standing at the kitchen window. She is wearing tennis shoes and a shapeless gray sweater over a summery calico dress. She is small and sprightly, like a bantam hen, but due to a long, youthful illness, her shoulders are pitifully hunched. Y'all know this is pretty autobiographical, that uh, Capote lived in Monroeville till he was ten, and Miss Souk was his best friend, this little old lady there. Her face is remarkable, not unlike Lincoln's, craggy like that, intended by sun and wind, but it is delicate, too, finely boned, and her eyes are sherry-colored and timid. "'Oh, my!' she exclaims, her breath smoking the window pane. <coughs> "'It's fruitcake weather, and I can just hear Mr. Haynes saying that. <coughs> "'The person to whom she is speaking <coughs> is myself. "'I'm seven. She is sixty-something. "'We are cousins, <coughs> very distant ones, and we've lived together, well, as long as I can remember. "'Other people inhabit the house.' relatives, and though they have power over us and frequently make us cry, we are not on the whole too much aware of them. We are each other's best friend. She calls me Buddy in memory of a boy who was formerly her best friend. The other Buddy died in the 1880s when she was still a child. She is still a child. I knew it before I got out of bed, she says, turning away from the window with a purposeful excitement in her eyes. The courthouse bell sounded so cold and clear, and there were no birds singing. They've gone to warmer country. Yes, indeed. Oh, buddy, stop stuffing biscuit and fetch our buggy. Help me find my hat. We've 30 cakes to bake. It's always the same. A morning arrives in November, and my friend, as though officially inaugurating the Christmas time of year that exhilarates her imagination (coughs) and fuels the blaze of her heart, announces, It's fruitcake weather. Fetch our buggy. Help me find my hat. The hat is found. (coughs) A straw cartwheel, coarse-sized with velvet roses, out of doors has faded. (coughs) Together we guide our buggy, a dilapidated baby carriage, out to the garden and into the grove of pecan trees. The buggy is mine. That is, it was bought for me when I was born. It is made of wicker, rather unraveled, and the wheels wobble like a drunkard's legs. But it is a faithful object. Springtimes we take it to the woods and fill it with flowers, herbs, and wild fern for our porch pots. In the summer we pile it with picnic paraphernalia and <coughs> sugarcane fishing poles and roll it down the edge of the creek. It has its winter uses, too as a truck for hauling firewood from the yard to the kitchen, (laughs) as a warm bed for Queenie, our tough little orange and white rat terrier who has survived distemper and two rattlesnake bites. Queenie is trotting beside it now. Three hours later, we are back in the kitchen hulling a heaping buggy load of windfall pecans. Our backs hurt from gathering them. How hard they were to find, the main crop having been shaken off the trees. And sold by the orchard's owners, who are not us. <clears throat> Among the concealing leaves, the frosted, deceiving grass crackle, a cherry crunch, scraps of miniature thunder sound as the shells collapse and the golden mound of sweet, oily, ivory meat mounts in the milk glass bowl. Queenie begs to taste, and now and again my friend sneaks for her a mite, though insisting we deprive ourselves. We mustn't, buddy. If we start, we won't stop. And there's scarcely enough as there is for 30 cakes. <clears throat> the kitchen is growing dark. Dusk turns the window into a mirror. Our reflections mingle with the rising moon as we work by the fireside of the firelight. <clears throat> At last, when the moon is quite high, we toss the final hull into the fire. And with joined sighs, watch it catch flame. The buggy is empty. The bowl brimful. We eat our supper, cold biscuits, bacon, blackberry jam, and discuss tomorrow. Tomorrow the kind of work I like best begins, buying cherries and citron, ginger and vanilla, and canned Hawaiian pineapple, rinds and raisins and walnuts and whiskey, <clears throat> and oh so much flour, butter, so many eggs, spices, flavorings, while we'll need a pony to pull the buggy home. But before the purchases can be made, and there's the question of money, neither of us has any, except for the skin flint sums persons in the house occasionally provide for us. A dime is considered very big money this is during the depression, so you know you stooped to pick up a penny off the ground back then, right? <clears throat> I had a relative who worked all day construction pouring concrete for fifty cents now I poured constru- poured concrete that's the toughest work i ever did and it's your paycheck's 50 cents, but that bought two bags of groceries back then, so <laughs> your family kept going. <clears throat> or what we earn ourselves from various activities, <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> holding rummage sales, selling buckets of hand-picked blackberries, jars of homemade jams and apple jelly and peach preserves, rounding up flowers for funerals and weddings. Once we won 79th prize, $5 in a national football contest. Not that we know a fool thing about football. It's just we enter any contest we hear about. At the moment, our hopes are centered on the $50,000 grand prize being offered to name a new brand of coffee. We suggested A.M. And after some hesitation, <coughs> for my friend thought it perhaps sacrilegious, the slogan A.M. Amen. <coughs> to tell the truth, our only really proper enterprise was the Fun and Freak Museum we conducted in a backyard woodshed two summers ago. The fun was a stereoptic, stereopticon with slide views of Washington and New York. Linus, by relative, had been to those places. She was furious when she discovered why we had borrowed it. The freak was a three-legged bitty chicken hatched by one of her own hens. Everybody here wanted to see that biddy. We charged grown-ups a nickel, kids two cents, and took in a good $20 before the museum shut down due to the decease of the main attraction. But one way or another, we do each year accumulate a Christmas savings, a fruitcake fund. These monies we keep hidden in an ancient bead purse, under a loose board, under the floor, under a chamber pot, under my friend's bed. The purse is seldom removed from this safe location except to make a deposit, or, as happens every Saturday, a withdrawal. For on Saturdays, I'm allowed 10 cents to go to the picture show. Boy, that's changed, Annie. it? <clears throat> my friend has never been to a picture show, nor does she intend to. I'd rather hear you tell the story, buddy. That way, I can imagine it more. Besides, a person my age shouldn't squander their eyes. When the Lord comes, let me see him clear. In addition to never having seen a movie, she has never eaten in a restaurant traveled more than five miles from home, received or sent a telegram, read anything except funny papers and the Bible, worn cosmetics, cursed, wished someone harm, told a lie on purpose, let a hungry dog go hungry. Here are a few things she has done, does do. Killed with a hoe, the biggest rattlesnake ever seen in this county. 16 rattles, dipped snuff secretly, <clears throat> tame hummingbirds, just tried till they balance on her finger. Tell ghost stories, we both believe in ghosts. So tingling, they chill you in July. Talk to herself, take walks in the rain, grow the prettiest japonicas in town. Know the recipe for every sort of old-time Indian cure, including a magical wart remover. Now, with supper finished, we retire to the room in a faraway part of the house where my friend sleeps in a scrap quilt-covered iron bed painted rose pink, her favorite color. Silently, wallowing in the pleasures of conspiracy, we take the bead purse from its secret place and spill its contents on the scrap quilt. Dollar bills, tightly rolled and green as May buds, somber 50-cent pieces, heavy enough to weigh a dead man's eyes. Lovely dimes, the liveliest coin, the one that really jingles. Nickels and quarters worn smooth as creek pebbles, but mostly a heapful heap, hateful heap of bitter odored pennies. Last summer, others in the house contracted to pay us a penny for every 25 flies we killed. Oh, the carnage of August, the flies that flew to heaven. Yet it was not work in which we took pride. And as we sit counting pennies, it is as though we are back tabulating dead flies. Neither of us has a head for figures. We count slowly, lose track, start again. According to her calculations, we have $12.73. According to mine, exactly $13. I do hope you're wrong, buddy. We can't mess around with 13. The cakes will fall (coughs) or put somebody in the cemetery. Well, I wouldn't dream of getting out of bed on the 13th. This is true. She always spends 13ths in bed. (coughs) So to be on the safe side, we subtract a penny and toss it out the window. Of the ingredients that go into our fruitcakes, whiskey is the most expensive as well as the hardest to obtain. State laws forbid its sale. But everybody knows you can buy a bottle for Mr. Ha-Ha Jones. And the next day, having completed our more prosaic shape shopping, we set we set out for Mr. Ha-Ha's business address, a sinful, to quote, public opinion, fish fry and dancing cafe down by the river. We've been there before and on the same errand. But in previous years, our dealings have been with Haha's has wife, an iodine-dark Indian woman with, <clears throat> with brassy peroxided hair and a dead-tired disposition. Actually, we've never laid eyes on her husband, though we've heard that he's an Indian too. A giant with razor scars across his cheeks. They call him ha because he's so gloomy. A man who never laughs. As we approach his cafe, A large log cabin festooned inside and out with chains of garish gay naked light bulbs and standing by the river's muddy edge under the shade of river trees (coughs) where moss drifts through the branches like gray mist. Our steps slow down. Even Queenie stops prancing and sticks close by. People have been murdered in Ha Ha's Cafe. Cut to pieces. Hit on the head. There's a case coming up in court next month. Naturally, these going-ons happen at night when the colored lights cast crazy patterns and the Victrola wails. In the daytime, ha-ha's is shabby and deserted. I knock at the door. My qu- queenie barks. My friend calls. Mrs. Ha-ha, ma'am? Anyone to home? <clears throat> Footsteps. The door opens. Our hearts overturn. It's Mr. Ha-Ha Jones himself. Mm -hmm. And he is a giant. He does have scars. He doesn't smile. No, he glowers at us through Satan-tilted eyes and demands to know. What you want with Ha-Ha? For a moment, we are too paralyzed to tell. Presently, my friend half finds her voice, a whispery voice at best. If you please, Mr. Ha-Ha, we'd like a quart of your finest whiskey. His eyes tilt more. Would you believe it? Ha-Ha is smiling, laughing too. Which one of you is drinking, man? It's for making fruitcakes, Mr. Ha-Ha. Cooking. This sobers him. He frowns. That's no way to waste good whiskey. Nevertheless, he retreats into the shadowed cafe and seconds later appears, carrying a bottle of daisy-yellow unlabeled liquor. He demonstrates its sparkle in the sunlight and says, Two dollars. We pay him with nickels and dimes and pennies. Suddenly, as he jangles the coins in his hand like a fistful of dice, his face softens. Tell you what, he proposes, pouring the money back in our bead purse just send me one of them fruit cakes instead well my friend remarks on her way home there's a lovely man <laughs> we put a we'll put an extra cup of raisins into his cake <clears throat> the black stove stoked with coal and firewood glows like a lighted pumpkin egg beaters whirl, spoons spin round in bowls of butter and sugar vanilla sweetens the air and ginger spices, <clears throat> melting nose, tingling odors saturate the kitchen, suffuse the house, drift out to the world on puffs of chimney smoke. In four days, our work is done. Thirty-one cakes, dampened with whiskey, bask on windowsills and shelves. Who are they for? And then it goes through like you know the uh, the Baptist minister going through, and and the bus driver and. Uh, uh, President Roosevelt, they said one day, and they, they hope it's going to be served at lunch and everything. Is it because my friend is shy with everyone except strangers and, these, and, and merest acquaintances that they seem to us our truest friends? I think yes. And the scrapbooks we keep of thank yous from White House stationery make us feel connected to eventful worlds beyond the kitchen. Now a new December fig branch grates against the window. The kitchen is empty. The cakes are gone. Yesterday we carted the last of them to the post office where the cost of stamps turned our purse inside out. We're broke. That rather depresses me, but my friend insists on celebrating with two inches of whiskey left on a ha haha's bottle. Quinny has a spoonful and a bowl of coffee. <coughs> she likes her coffee chicory flavored and strong. The rest we divide between a pair of jelly glasses We're both quite awed at the prospect of drinking straight whiskey. The taste of it brings screwed up expressions and sour shudders. But by and by we begin to sing, the two of us singing different songs simultaneously. I don't know the words to mine, just come on along, come on along to the dark town strutters ball. But I can dance, that's what I mean to be, a tap dancer. My dancing shadow rollicks on the walls. Our voices rock the chinaware. We giggle as if unseen hands are tickling us. Queenie rolls on her back. Her paws plow the air. Something like a grin stretches her black lips. Inside myself, I feel warm and sparky as those crumbling logs. Carefree as the wind in the chimney. My friend waltzes around the stove, the hem of her poor calico skirt pinched between her fingers as though it were a party dress. Show me the way to go home, she sings, her tennis shoes squeaking on the floor. Show me the way to go home. Enter two relatives, very angry, (coughs) potent with eyes that scold, tongues that scald, Listen to what they have to say. The words tumbling into a rat together to wrathful tune. A child of seven. Whiskey on his breath. Are you out of your mind? Feeding a child of seven. Must be loony. Road to ruination. Remember cousin Kate? Uncle Charlie? Uncle Charlie's brother-in-law? Shame? Scandal? Humiliation? Kneel? Pray? Beg the Lord. Queenie sneaks under the stove. My friend gazes at her, her shoes, her chin quivers. She lifts her skirt and blows her nose and runs to her room. Long after the town has gone to sleep and the house is silent except for the chimings of clocks and the sputter of fading fires, she is weeping into a pillow already as wet as a widow's handkerchief. Don't cry, I say, sitting at the bottom of her bed and shivering, despite my flannel nightgown, the smells of last winter's cough syrup. Don't cry, I beg, teasing her toes, tickling her feet. You're too old for that. It's because I am too old. Old and funny. Not funny. Fun. More fun than anybody. Listen, if you don't stop crying, you'll be so tired tomorrow we can't go get a tree. She straightens up. Queenie jumps on the bed where Queenie is not allowed to lick her cheeks. I know we'll find where we'll find real pretty trees, buddy. And Holly, too, with berries big as your eyes. It's way off in the worlds, far than we've ever been. Papa used to bring us Christmas trees from there, carry them on his shoulder. That's 50 years ago. Well, now, I can't wait for morning. <clears throat> morning, frozen rime lusters the grass. The sun rounds in orange, and orange as hot weather moons. Bounce on the horizon, burns to the silvered winter woods. And so they go off deep into the woods there, carrying a burlap sack there, crossing a freezing stream. We're almost there. Can you smell it, buddy? She says as though we're approaching an ocean. And indeed, it is a kind of ocean. Scented acres of holiday trees, prickly-leafed holly, red berries shiny as Chinese bells, black crows swoop upon them, screaming. Having stuffed our burlap sacks with enough greenery and crimson to garland a dozen windows, we set about choosing a tree. It should be, muses my friend, twice as tall as a boy, so a boy can't steal the stars. The one we pick is twice as tall as me. A brave, handsome brute that survives 30 hatchet strokes before it kills with a creaking, rending cry. Lugging it like a kill, we commence the long trek out. Every few yards, we abandon the struggle, sit down and pant. But we have the strength of triumphant huntsmen, and that in the tree's virile, icy perfume revive us. Go to zone. Many compliments accompany our sunset return along the red clay road to town. But my friend is sly and non committal when passers by praise the treasure perched in our buggy. What a fine tree, and where'd it come from? Yonder ways, <laughs> she murmurs vaguely. Nothing personal. In Paris, though, okay, if I hear la bas one more time <laughs> after I've asked directions being lost, <laughs> that's the French yonder ways, la Ba," okay. <clears throat> Once a car stops and the rich mill owner's lazy wife leans out and whines, Give me two bits cash for that old tree. Ordinarily, my friend's afraid of saying no, but on this occasion, she promptly shakes her head. We wouldn't take a dollar. The mill owner's wife persists. A <clears throat> dollar, my foot, fifty cents, that's my last offer. Goodness, woman, you can get another one. In answer, my friend gently reflects. I doubt it. There's never two of anything. Home, Queenie slumps by the fire and sleeps till tomorrow, snoring loud as a human. A trunk in the attic contains a shoebox of ermine tails off the opera cape of a curious lady who once rented a room in the house. Coils of frazzled tinsel gone gold with age, one silver star, a brief rope of dilapidated, undoubtedly dangerous, candy-like light bulbs. Excellent decorations as far as they go, which isn't far enough. My friend wants our tree to blaze like a Baptist church window. Droop with weighty snows of ornament. But we can't afford the made in Japan splendors at the five and dime. So we do what we've always done. Sit for days at the kitchen table with scissors and crayons and stacks of colored paper. I make sketches and my friend cuts them out. Lots of cats. Fish too because they're easy to draw. Mm -hmm. Some apples, some watermelons. Only in Alabama do you put watermelons on a Christmas tree, right? <coughs> a few winged angels devised from saved up sheets of Hershey bar tinfoil. We use safety pins to attach these creations to the tree. As a final touch, we sprinkle the branches with shredded cotton, picked in August for this purpose. My friend surveying the effect clasp her hands together. Now, honest, buddy, doesn't it look good enough to eat? Queenie tries to eat an angel. After weaving and ribboning holly wreaths for all the front windows, our next project is the fashioning of family gifts. Tie-dye scars for the ladies. For the men, a home-brewed lemon and licorice and aspirin syrup to be taken at the first symptoms of cold and hunting. But when it comes time for making each other's gift, my friend and I separate to work secretly. I would like to buy her a pearl-handled knife, a radio, A whole pound of chocolate-covered cherries. I like them, too. We tasted some once, and she always swears. I could live on them, buddy. Lord, yes, I could. And that's not taking his name in vain. Instead, I'm building her a kite. She would like to give me a bicycle. She said so on several million occasions. (laughs) If only I could, buddy. It's bad enough in life to do without something you want. But confound it what gets my goats not being able to give somebody something you want them to have. Only one of these days I will, buddy. Locate you a bike. Don't ask how. Steal it, maybe. <laughs> Instead, I'm fairly certain she's building me a kite. The same as last year and the year before. The year be- <clears throat> before that, we swing shots, Of which is fine by me, for we are champion kite flyers who study the wind like sailors. My friend more accomplished than I can get a kite aloft when there is enough breeze to carry clouds. Christmas Eve afternoon, we scrape together a nickel and go to the butchers to buy Queenie's traditional gift, a good noble beef bone. <clears throat> the bone, wrapped in funny paper, that's great for a Christmas presents, cheap Christmas paper, <clears throat> is placed high in the tree near the silver star. <clears throat> Queenie knows it's there. She squats at the foot of the tree, staring up in a trance of greed. <clears throat> when bedtime arrives, she refuses to budge. Her excitement is equaled by my own. I kick the covers and turn my pillow as though it were a scorching summer's night. Somewhere a rooster crows, falsely, for the sun's still on the other side of the world. Buddy, are you awake? It's my friend calling from her room, which is next to mine. And an instant later, she's sitting on my bed holding a candle. Well, I can't sleep a hoot. My mind's jumping like a jackrabbit. Mm -hmm. Buddy, you think Mrs. Roosevelt will serve our cake at dinner? We huddle in the bed, and she squeezes my hand, I love you. Seems like your hand used to be so much smaller. I guess I hate to see you grow up. When you're grown up, will we still be friends? I say always, but I feel so bad, buddy. I wanted so bad to give you a bike. I tried to sell my cameo, Papa gave me. Buddy, I made you another kite. Then I confess I made her one, too, and we laugh. The candle burns too short to hold. At it goes, exposing the starlight and the stars spinning at the window, like a visible caroling that slowly, slowly daybreak silences. Possibly we doze, but the beginnings of dawn splashes like cold water. We're up, wide-eyed and wondering while we wait for the others to waken. Quite deliberately, my friend drops a kettle on the kitchen floor. I tap dance in front of closed doors. One by one, the household emerges, looking as though they'd like to kill us both. But it's Christmas, so they can't. First, a gorgeous breakfast. Just everything you can imagine, from flapjacks and fried squirrel to hominy grits and honey in the comb which puts everyone in a good humor except for my friend and me. Frankly, we're so impatient to get the presents, we can't eat a mouthful. Well, I'm disappointed. I hope you've never had a Christmas like this. Who wouldn't be? With socks, a Sunday school shirt, some handkerchiefs, a hand-me-down sweater, and a year's subscription to a religious magazine for children. The Little Shepherd... It makes me boil. It really does. My friend has a better haul. A sack of satsumas. That's her best present. Y'all seen those for sale going down to Fair Hope and around there, South Alabama. <clears throat> she is proudest, however, of a white wool shawl knitted by her married sister. But she says her favorite gift's the kaida builder. And it is very beautiful, though not as beautiful as the one she made me, which is blue and scattered with gold and green good-conduct stars. Moreover, my name is painted on it, Buddy. Buddy, the wind is blowing. The wind is blowing, and nothing will do till we run to a pasture below the house where Queenie has scooted to bury her bone, and where, a winter hence, Queenie will be buried too there plunging through the healthy waist-high grass we unreal our kites feel them twitching at the string like skyfish as they swim into the wind satisfied sun warmed we sprawl in the grass and peel satsumas and watch our kites cavort soon i forget the socks and hand-me-down sweater i'm as happy as if we'd already won the fifty thousand dollar grand prize in that coffee naming contest my, how foolish I am, my friend cries, suddenly alert, like a woman remembering too late she has biscuits in the oven. You know what I've always thought, she asks in a tone of discovery, not smiling at me, but a point beyond. I've always thought a body would have to be sick and dying before they saw the Lord. And I imagine that when I, he came, it'd be like looking at the Baptist window. Prettiest colored glass with the sun pouring through. Such a shine you don't know it's getting dark. And it's been a comfort to think of that shine taking away all the spooky feeling. But I'll wager it never happens. I'll wager at the very end a body realizes the Lord has already shown himself that things as they are, her hand circles in a gesture that gathers clouds and kites and grass and Queenie pawing earth over her bone. Just what they've always seen was seeing him. As for me, I could leave the world with today in my eyes. This is our last Christmas together. Life separates us. (laughs) Those who know best decide that I belong in a military school. And so follows a miserable succession of bugle-blowing prisons, grim, reveille-ridden summer camps, I have a new home, too, but it doesn't count. Uh, Home is where my friend is, and there I never go. And there she remains, putting around the kitchen, alone with Queenie, then alone. Buddy, dear, she writes in her wild, hard-to-read script, Yesterday Jim Macy's horse kicked Queenie bad. Be thankful she didn't feel much. I wrapped her in a fine linen sheet, and rode her in a buggy down to Simpson's pasture, where she can be with all her bones. For a few Novembers, she continues to bake her fruitcake single-handed. Not as many, but some, and of course, she always sends me the best of the batch. Also, in every letter, she encloses a dime wadded in toilet paper. See a picture show and write me the story. But gradually in her letters, she pretends to confuse me with her other friend, the buddy who died in the 1880s. And More and more thirteenths are not the only days she stays in bed. A morning arrives in November, a leafless, birdless coming of winter morning, when she cannot rouse herself to exclaim, Oh my, it's fruitcake weather. And when that happens, I know it. A message saying so merely confirms a piece of news some secret vein had already received, severing from me an irreplaceable part of myself, letting it loose like a kite on a broken string. That is why, walking across the school campus on this particular December morning, I keep searching the sky, as if I expected to see Rather like hearts, a lost pair of kites hurrying toward heaven. I tell you, that's, that'll make you weep. I mean, that last paragraph. Yeah. I've read that thing 200 times and still goosebumps. What a beautiful story. That is my favorite Christmas story. Sorry, Charles Dickens, and I know everybody's going <laughs> to <laughs> go with Scrooge and stuff, but that is just just a gorgeous story. And I guess you can tell from, from Souk, from you know his friend, she she was not quite right. She was had a little problem there. This is um, that's the that's the only picture they ever had made together. There she is, her friend. Okay, the souk who's, uh and uh, uh, never never went what more than five miles from home and everything. <laughs> and you know Capote is dill. And to Kill Mockingbird, I guess everybody knows that, right? Okay, and so he became best friends with Harper Lee. He would until he was ten. He would come down to live with distant cousins, okay, uh, which I'm sure affected him a lot. But you know, little old ladies there raised him stuff. But uh, anyway, got me got the material for some uh, some great stories there. So uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff. But I, as I said, somebody maybe came a little bit later. First time I heard this. I was a 4'11 and three quarters, not five feet. I, I measured weekly, I think, <laughs> trying to crack five feet. Ninth grader, be, Birmingham University School, a place you've never heard of. But anyway, it was a pretty intense prep school back then. Merged with Brook Hill on their campus. Became Altamont School, where I taught for a long time. <clears throat> but anyway, I, I guess I weighed 100 pounds, and Mr. Hames was four of me. But he just he really helped. Mold my reading and my writing, and just was a great headmaster for Altman. I think as we were, as I said, I think we were one of the best schools in the country at that time. It was a great, great place to teach then. <clears throat> so, uh, but he would just come alive. First time I heard this story was with him and uh, a Rose Freimay, and he just he loved it. He was he was just a thespian. I mean, he loved <clears throat> he loved being a, loved being the center of attention. Uh, <clears throat> The thing I missed that I wish I would seen when I was up at Randolph School in, in Huntsville teaching before Altamont, uh, BUS put on Cyrano de and, uh Martin Hames was Montfleurie, and if you have read that play, Montfleury is quite a feminine and rotund actor, you know, out there in like a little tutu and everything, little, you know, rose garlands in his hair and everything, playing a a pipe, and I would have given a lot of money to see Martin Hames there dressed up as Montfleury, you know, with a high-pitched voice going around on stage. Well any of y'all got anything you want to share about the your experience with the story or anything it's just, it's just beautiful yeah. it's just a a gorgeous gorgeous story and he he had to leave Monroe and he got capote then and got sent off to some uh, military school and that broke things up but it was uh just a, it was a beautiful beautiful friendship yes ma'am. what happened to his parents I mean i don't know what Capote had a rough childhood i mean you yeah, know his uh when his mom we were, go out on a date and stuff he his, his babysitter was a closet you know she just kind of tossed him in and stuff so it was is it was, he he you know you you can say things about truman Capac- he he had an incredible gift okay uh you you read uh, tree of nine Christmas memory and uh you know uh there those uh those early stories are just gorgeous he uh he i he was uh i think what messed him up was ironically what made him the money. Uh y'all acquainted with uh, the murder story. In cold blood. In cold blood. And so uh he went out which was best seller for him, but he went out and he saw what, Perry, whoever, okay, the guy that ate chewed on aspirin, okay? I said, I know that that's a bad boy. I, anybody, I hate the taste of aspirin dissolving. Okay, and uh, anyway, I think he just got too up close to evil when he interviewed those two killers that had wiped out that family in Kansas, and I think it kind of damaged him. He was, a, you know, I I saw a title of a collection of poetry one time. There are men too gentle to walk with wolves, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, he was one of them. But. Uh, uh, I wrote that line because I use it all the time. It's the title of a collection of poetry. Isn't yeah, it a great? I don't have that book. Yeah. Don't know. Mm-hmm. Anonymous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was, uh, I just, it got to him. It's, uh, well, Mr. Haynes, <clears throat> I always felt like uh, uh, Truman Capote wrote To Kill Mockingbird, uh, <laughs> which I probably wouldn't, I, I need some more evidence, but there are some similarities there. Of course, there are Harper Lee defenders, and they said she wrote most of *In Cold Blood*. That she oh, <laughs> she had to she had to go in there and do the interviews with the neighbors because he just put people off. Okay, he, he didn't fly in Kansas too well, and uh, he had come on a little strong and and stuff. But uh, she she kind of salvaged the book going and getting a lot of the interviews. From what I understand, she she was a little. Easier to talk to <laughs> than Truman sometimes. Well, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate that. That's so much fun. Thanks. I love reading. Thank you. I haven't read that in years. I read it to 200 classes. Then I read it for a few years at Altamont. We got together. Mr. Hames would get together. And he would read that for the for the community. And that auditorium was jammed. People coming here, Mr. Mister Hames here. Okay. Well, y'all. hope y'all have a very Merry Christmas. Okay. Thanks.